This is God's word. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption, theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. The Word of God. I invite you to pray with me. God, we come to you now uh, in this time to, to draw close to you, and we ask that as each of us has different thoughts about you and different experience, uh, that you would speak to us each in the way that we need to hear you. Whether we're here for the first time and we don't know what it is that actually convinced us ever to come to a church or we're excited about the work you're doing and we feel that you're very present in our lives, God. You, you call us to you and we believe that you have something to say. So speak to us now in this time and, um, and help us to experience your true presence. Amen. This summer, Katie and I, I'm from Michigan, we went back to visit my folks for a couple weeks, and while we were there, um, maybe you've had this if you've ever like gone back to the home you grew up in or your folks' house. There were all these toys that were very familiar to me. Like I could say, that scratch is from this, and that's from this, and I remember all these things, and then this is how you play with that one. And, and my kids are down there playing with these same toys. And it was kind of this cool experience. And at one point while we were there, my mom said something to the, to the effect of, Oh, should we get should we get some more of Cope's toys out to play with? And I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, wait a minute, Cope's toys? Like, no, 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 no. Those are my Matchbox cars. Those are my Army men. Those are my books that you used to read to me. Those, those aren't Cope's. Those those are mine way before they were ever Cope's. <laughs> and I've got three older siblings, and so if they heard me tell this story, then they would be like, wait, 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 wait. Those aren't your toys. Ten years before you even came along, those were our toys. Those are my Matchbox cars. Those are my army men. Those were our books. Like, see, like, you crossed our name out and wrote yours on the cover. And I'm like, I know, that's crazy. What's your name doing on my toys? But, <laughs> and so there's this, this issue, like, well, wh- whose toys really are these? And then also while we're home, my parents are at this stage where they are kind of trying to cleanse the house of the kids and so it's like go through all your stuff you find out what you want find out what we can throw away and so I'm going through all this stuff again and it's the same kind of situation it's like well I think that's mine or I mean it's got my name somewhere on it along with other people but I kind of want it whose is it is it is it my siblings and I don't really care I want this anyway I'm just like I want that and this whole process of, of what's mine what's theirs and it's just this, it's kind of a weird thing because it feels like mine, but it also feels like it could be someone else's too. And this issue of like what's ours and what's theirs 
one of the issues in Romans that we read today. And since we're going to be reading passages from Romans for like the next six weeks, I think, so we're going to do a series on Romans, I want to take some time and just look at the issues surrounding this book and the author and what's going on in Rome at the time that it's being written. So we'll take a couple minutes to do that, and it will give us a good foundation for the next few weeks. So in the Old Testament, the people of God were known as the Israelites. And it was the Israelites that God came to and said, I'm going to establish this relationship with you that will be a blessing to all the nations. They were the ones who God came to, and his blessing to the world ultimately flowed through this relationship he had with the Israelites. And they, were, they had this very distinct relationship with God um, that he chose them to be in this role. And this group of people, the Israelites, is the group of people that Paul, who wrote this book of Romans, he came from, from the Israelites. And he was not just an Israelite, but he was one of their leaders. He was a Pharisee, which meant he would take the scriptures and read them and try and interpret them and then come to the people and say, this is what scripture says, here's what it means, here's how we should live, and the people would just really follow him. He was one of like the elitist of the elite of this people. In this relationship with God, Paul had this tremendous role of interpreting what it meant that God wanted them to do. And so anything that seemed to challenge this way of life or seemed to go against what he inter- interpreted the scripture to be, he would try and rid that from society. So for example, when the church first started and these people started coming together as Christians, Paul saw that as a huge threat to this way of life that he believed was God-ordained, what it was supposed to be. Um, and so he tried to start eliminating Christianity from society. And he was known as like Christianity's greatest opponent. He was present at several of the murders of people who were preaching this message about the new Jesus. And anybody who was a Christian knew Paul's name and they were afraid of him because of this, this role he played. Um, so, until Paul had this, what he considers his God approached him, and he had this amazing experience where the risen Jesus came to him, and he was converted to become a Christian himself. Which is so ironic, because this message that he was so against, you know, to the point of persecuting someone to death, he's now become the greatest advocate of Christianity ever. He started going, traveling all over, teaching people about this message of Jesus, starting churches here and there. And in a large part, a lot of the newer Christians were, were uh, Jews before. They were Israelites. And they just saw this Christianity as a continuation of this relationship they had with God. And so it would make sense that if Paul, who is this super, super Jew, like he would be the one that would also say, like, yeah, this is a continuation of what we had. Um, this is still a Jewish thing. This is an Israel thing. But what's interesting is Paul's ministry was largely to the people who were considered the Gentiles, who didn't have this Jewish background, and they didn't even they didn't know, they didn't want to know any of the practices before. It's like we're coming into this Christianity thing. It's a, a belief God wants to be with us, and that's that's who Paul spent his energy trying to include them in this, this new religion, this new relationship, how it was framed. And so you can imagine that a lot of Paul's time was spent putting out these fires between these two groups. 
We have the Jewish Christians who say, you know, if you want to be a Christian, then you have to, like you're a Jew, you have to follow these practices also. And you have the Gentile Christians who are like, we don't want anything to do with that. You mean you have to cut off what? I mean, we're this, we want to be in this relationship. It doesn't seem like that's part of it. And so Paul, a lot of his work is is addressing both of those issues to both of these groups. And that's what was happening in Rome. This book of Romans is actually a letter that Paul wrote to Rome. And in this time, Rome was essentially the capital of the world. There's probably, I mean, roughly a million people living in the city, and there were these, um, many of these little groups that were Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they would meet in each other's homes, and they had these different um, just kind of interpretations and views of what this new Christian movement was. And so when Paul wrote a letter, it wasn't like it was going to this huge church on the corner of first and third in downtown Rome and everybody that was a Christian in Rome was going to hear this letter. He sent this letter and it's going to be passed around to these different little meetings that take place of the Christians in Rome. And so imagine trying to write a letter that's going to make sense to all those diverse groups but also address some of the bigger, like the main very specific concerns um, that are taking place. And that's what he does um, in this passage. He's up until this chapter he's been kind of going back and forth to different groups. Like he'll address kind of part of an issue for one and part of an issue for another. And then it, and he kind of switches it and he goes back to the other one. And so here in the, the part we just read, uh, it kind of seems like he may or may not... See what you think. Who do you think he's talking to? If it's the Jewish Christians or if it's the Gentile Christians? Um, I'll start at verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So he knows both groups are going to be reading this letter. And he knows it's going to come across differently to one group than it is to the other. And so if, imagine if it was written to the Israelite people, what would they be hearing? You know, what would they see? They'd probably look at that and they'd maybe be feeling pretty good about themselves. They go through it, the first one. Theirs is the adoption. And when, to understand this adoption concept, it's, it's similar today, but in the Old Testament, there was this this uh, issue or this practice, it was like sonship. And so the oldest male heir of the family largely got everything. And that was, it was the sonship. And so if you got adopted into a family, oftentimes adoption would take place because there was no heir, and they would adopt someone else, and they would become this heir, this heirship, this sonship. And so... When Paul says the Israelites, theirs is the adoption. If you look back at um, Exodus 4, verse 22, you can see how God thought, of it, thought about the Israelites. He's talking to Moses when Moses is going to go to see the Pharaoh. He says, Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. There's this, there's that, that thread running through this issue that even God sees like, these are my people, they get all my inheritance, all these blessings are going through 
this people. And it's, it's not because, obviously, this Israel is not a natural son of God, but it's this adoption. He called the Israelites from among all the other nations in the world at that time. They weren't the biggest. They weren't the strongest. They weren't the most holy or the, the nicest people. He just called them. And it was an adoption thing that brought them in to this, this sonship, this heirship, the ability to receive all the blessings that God wants to send out. And then the next, uh, what's the next thing he says? The divine glory. Theirs is the divine glory. This is another, um, a big issue in the Old Testament. It's, it's just beautiful how God allowed, as part of this relationship, he allowed his glory to be present for these people. They were the ones that were going to represent it to the rest of the world to, to be a blessing. If you can turn to Exodus 40, um, verse 34. There's this, this word in here that you've maybe heard before. It's called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this place that God allowed um, the Israelites to build a temple. First it was a tent and it became a temple. And in that, God's presence was always dwelling. And so the Israelites had this temple, this tabernacle, where God's presence could dwell. And that word tabernacle is even used often in, as a verb form. Like God tabernacled among these people. And so his divine glory was there. And in verse 34, you can see how it's kind of explained. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so it's another, like this divine glory that the Israelites had that the other people, the other people didn't have, ta- other nations didn't have tabernacles. They didn't have temples where God's presence had this very specific, you know, seat and they knew that's where we go to be and interact with God. Uh, what's the next one? He says, the covenants. The, theirs are the covenants. Look at Genesis uh, 17. This is kind of where God calls out and, and starts this relationship with his people. I'm going to start at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God." So this covenant idea, I think it best comes out where he says, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. This covenant relationship where God declares, I will be your God. I will, I will always be in this relationship. I will uphold this relationship with you. And this covenant that he made with the people of Israel. Let's look at the, the next one, the giving of the law. And a lot of times what we think of instantly when we hear this giving of the law is we think Ten Commandments. Like, that's what God gave them. But it's also all this, um, this law about how to, how to approach God, how to come to the temple, how to do sacrifices, how to interact with this God. And a lot of times, 
we may be, people will think of the law as God just gave us a list of rules to follow. But really, if you think about it a little bit differently, think about if there was this, this the richest person alive and they came to you and said, I'm going to give you all this, these wonderful things, these biggest mansions, these whatever kind of cars you can imagine, all this beautiful land and property, and all I ask you to do is like, just clean the house every once in a while. And you'd be like, okay, I can clean, a, I can clean that. And so imagine this God, the creator of all eternity, coming down and saying, I'm going to give you all these blessings. I'm going to be in a relationship with you. I'm going to be your God. And all you have to do is just keep yourself clean every once in a while. Come to the temple. Cleanse yourself. This is how we're going to be in relationship and it's going to be healthy. For the Israelites, like, okay, like the law, heck yeah, we'll, we'll clean the house every once in a while, God. Just, just stick with us. And so, and so rather than having this negative kind of connotation of like you have the law, you have to follow these rules, like it, it, it really is a blessing in that sense that God even allows people to participate in that way with him. And that leads into the next one too where it says theirs is the temple worship. That's part of this whole I'm allowing you to come approach me, to be close to me, to offer these sacrifices so that you may receive these blessings and we can... Um, dialogue together as a people and, I, and I'm your God and you're my people and that happens through this ability to come to the temple and worship you. And so that's another blessing they have. And then he says, theirs are the promises. And we just read some of those when we read about the call of Abraham where he's like, I will make you a great nation. I will bless those bless you. I, all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. And there's all these promises that God gives his people throughout the Old Testament, a promise of a Messiah, a promise of land. And those are all given specifically to the Israelite people. And finally he says, and theirs are the patriarchs. And again, these are the ones that this, the nation of Israel can fall back on. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, and these different people in the past that God has established these promises through. And it's oftentimes he says, and these are to you and your descendants. And so if you can trace your line back and say, yeah, I'm a part of that, well then obviously you're a part of these promises and this covenant and this relationship with God. So if, you, if you're an Israelite and you're hearing an, or a, an, an Israelite Christian at that time and you're hearing all these things and Paul is saying, you know, the Israelites, they have this, they have this, they have this, they have this. And you hear that, you're probably like, yeah, Gentiles, look at These are our things that God has given us. They're like, our name is on those. Like, who do you think you are trying to claim that you have this new corner market on Christianity? But he also says, he seems to be saying, not everybody gets it. They've had all this stuff that God has blessed them with, and still some of them, they're, like, they don't get it. They're still not on board with this continuation, this this new gospel, this new good news, and this new form of the relationship that God's offering to them. And if you're a Gentile and you read these things, it might also come across kind of differently. If you hear them say, theirs is the adoption, well then there's another place in the chapter before in the same letter, if you look at uh, chapter 8, verse 15 and 17, he says, starting at verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are his heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. And so there's this idea that he's presented already to the Gentiles saying, you're already a part of this adoption. You're included. Um, and this is, this is a true story that I know of, of a girl who, um, she had this relationship with this guy and she, they were in love or whatever and he, um, she got pregnant and in the process he was starting into drugs and getting into this bad crowd and he went to jail. And so she's had her son. He got out of jail, came back. They got back together, um, were together. She got pregnant again. He went back to jail shortly after that. She had her second child. Happened a third time. She got three kids with the same guy. And eventually he was in jail for a long time. Didn't come back into the picture. And so she's raising these three kids on her own for several years and the oldest one's probably somewhere in middle school at the time, and she met this other guy. Loves the kids. Great guy, wants to be part of this family, wants to um, be involved in lives, wants to adopt them. And so they eventually get engaged, they get married, and they, the kids are in the wedding, and they walk down the aisle at the end of the service, and the kids come down, and the guy, he gets down his knees, looks him in the eye, and they get there, and he looks at him and he says, now you're mine. And he says that to the kids, and it's this idea like, now I have you. Like You don't have to go back to that. And this idea that you have of a past father or whatever that is, that's not this anymore. Now you're mine. And God, it's like God comes to these Gentiles and says, now you're mine. You're a part of this adoption. All those things that I'm giving my children, like I want you to be a part of that. I want you to be in this relationship also. And there's no distinction. There's no asterisk on this adoption like, these are my true kids, these are my adopted kids, because they're all on the same playing field. Take a look uh, at the few verses right after the chapter we, or the passage we just read. If you look at uh, verse 6. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel, nor because nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So in one, he's acknowledging like even some of the people who are in Israel, they're not even a part of this relationship, even though I've offered it to them and given to them. And if you jump down to verse 24, it says, Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my beloved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. And so this idea that it was this adoption was something that only Israel had now becomes something that also God opens up to everyone else, to the Gentiles, to, to us. I'm guessing, I'm guessing you're probably not so following a lot of the Jewish practices. Maybe some of you are, but um, I'm guessing we, we fall under this Gentile uh, category. And then the next one, the glory of God. If you look at Mark chapter 13, there's this, this also in the New Testament, you also hear how uh, 
you'll hear the name Son of God as being obviously who we think of as Jesus and how he allows us to participate in his sonship through him. And so it's this idea that whatever glory or whatever um, blessings Jesus has, he allows us to participate in that with him. And so if you look at Mark 13, verse 26, it says that, and I think this is so cool, maybe I just geek out on this kind of stuff, but do you remember the glory from the Old Testament, the glory of God, it came down in a cloud, and the glory of God was in the tent? So this is talking about Jesus. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And this idea, like this comparison that's made, the God and the glory of the Old Testament that came in relationship with his people is now present in this person of Jesus. All the glory, and he even uses the cloud image um, to show like this glory is now in Jesus and that glory is offered to you, um, even to the Gentiles. Um, And the next one, the covenants. If you look at Luke 22, verse 20, In the Old Testament covenants, they had this, um, it was often called they would cut a covenant. And that would involve taking animals that they sacrificed, cutting them in half. And it was there was always blood involved, obviously. You cut an animal in half, there's going to be blood. And Moses you know, at one time says, and this is the blood of the covenant. It's almost like the this is what seals it. This is what makes it a real covenant. And here you hear Jesus speaking about himself. He says in 22, uh, verse 20, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so there's this new covenant that God's establishing, this building on the old one, and it even has the same elements and the same symbolism that the old covenants had of um, using this blood. And and that's why this imagery of blood and sacrifice is so important, especially to the Israelite people, but it's also for the Gentiles to understand what's going on. Part of it is... They should really know the story. They should know what God was doing long before they even felt like they were they were in the picture. And the giving of the law. Um, this is also in the same letter that Paul writes in Romans, uh, verse three. Verse three or chapter three. I'm sorry, uh, starting at verse twenty. In the same letter where he just said the law belong, you know the giving of the law is Israel's. He says, Therefore, no one will declare righteousness, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believed. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so he's, Paul's not only saying like, this belongs to Israel, he's also again with this one, including the Gentiles in it. They're all, they're all a part of this. And then with the temple worship, you've heard the verses, your body is a temple. That comes from the Bible. That's, that's the New Testament idea of the Spirit dwelling in all of us. We don't, have the temple anymore. We have to go to be in God's presence. He's promised that He's present with us through the Spirit. The promises um, with this adoption and this sonship and this heirship that the Gentiles are now a part of, they get all these blessings. They get to put their names on all these things that Israelite has. And so 
hearing that and hearing like the two sides that even Paul in his own letter is saying, what, what does it seem like he's trying to do here? In some ways, it seems like he's trying to pick a fight. Like trying to say, well, they've got this, you've got this, they're better than this, well, you're... And it's like, what? how are they supposed to respond to this idea of who's... Like, so what is it? If you're an Israelite, are you hearing, so are we... Are we really better? Are we the true ones? Are they the true ones? What is it? And I think the point, what Paul's trying to do here is he knows that the gospel is going to do two things. The first thing it's going to do is it's going to remove pride. Um, To the Jews who might be saying, look at all that we've ever had. Of course we're the ones that God wants to establish this relationship with. Look at us. Paul says, he points out that a lot of the people that have had these gifts, like they're not even getting it. Like they don't even buy into this relationship. They're not embracing this this approach from God and and they're falling. They're broken because of it. And in another way, it says to the, to the Gentiles who might be saying, look it, we don't need any of that. That's all old. That's nothing we need anymore. Saying to them, well, yeah, look at how rich that is. Look at where the relationship started. If it never came to this point where God in, uh, initiated this, it would never be to the point where now you're included. And this this beautiful story of like knowing the Jewish story is now also your story and you're a part of this process, this way that God is growing in his relationship with us. And maybe your experience with faith has been hearing from people that you need to behave a certain way before you can belong to this. And people who have tried to say, you know, you have to set your life up this way and if you do this, this, and this, and this, then you'll be welcome here. Then you'll fit into this Christianity thing. And I, I think Paul here is, is blowing that out of the water, saying, no, look at Everything that Israel says, you had to be this way, people are now being welcome, welcomed in without being that. And the second thing the gospel is doing right now is it's giving hope. For those, for those Jews who just thought, you know, we had all this together and now it seems like people are falling away from this, like it's not working for them. He's saying, well, look it, you're here. It's important. We've established it with you. God had built this relationship with you for these hundreds and even thousands, some believe, years to get to this point where other people are involved. And it gives hope to the Gentiles saying, even though you've never had that, like that's, that wasn't something that you were present for, it's extended to you now. You get all these these blessings, all these Toys, there's plenty of blessings that God wants to give and there's room for everyone's name on it. You don't have to cross other people's out. There's this huge list. And through Christ, we participate in this sonship, this, this receiving of all the blessings, whether we're, they were the Israelite Christians or the Gentile Christians, through the true Son of God who welcomes us to be a part of Him, we can receive all the blessings that come to him. Um, so it, it just kind of depends what, what side of the argument you find yourself on. Um, is it difficult to accept the fact that other people are included in this even though they don't think or believe the same way that you do? Um, is it hard to see other people playing with your toys or getting your blessings when they don't seem to be living up to what you consider the right way to believe or the right way to think? Or are you the on the side of the argument where um, you find it really hard to believe that God wants to look at you and say, you're mine. To say, I want to give this to you. After all this time of being told you're not doing the right things, you're not living up to who you're supposed to be, 
is it hard to believe that there might be a God that wants to come to you and wants to just give you everything that he can to bless you with and to know that you you can receive it. And so in a sense, these two things that the gospel is doing, it's it's like this, the phrase we say you know, every week here, you're more of a mess than you care to admit, and in Jesus you're more loved and accepted than you can ever imagine. Paul's saying to, to both groups and to everybody, in this equal plane, to us, you're broken. You can never live up to anything that you'll set up for yourself to be good enough to earn these blessings, to earn this love. But at the same time, he says, I'm giving to them to you anyway because I love you, not because you're going through this checkoff list. And so, what? allow yourself to sit in that. Allow yourself to to hear both sides. Sometimes we all need the different the different parts of that argument. We need to hear we're not as good as we sometimes think we might be. And at the same time, sometimes we need to hear even with all the stuff that you struggle with or that you're broken about or ashamed of, you're still loved. You're still welcomed. It's still, the story is still yours. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for um, your story in our lives, for your story throughout history and the way that you have initiated a relationship with us and, and now you call us to, to be in relationship with you and you tell us you love us, not because of anything we've done, but because um, we are yours. So please help us to, to hear your words and to hear your, your call in our lives to know that... You know, it's not because of anything we do or anything we have to live up to, but it's because um, of your calling us and your loving us regardless uh, of where we stand that makes us special to you and that allows us to receive your blessings. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.